Have your Bibles if you want to grab hold of them and join me in the book of First Peter, chapter two. And if you do need a Bible to follow along for this morning's study, there are a couple copies in the aisle. The gentlemen have a copy of Scripture. If you slip your hand up, they'll be happy to get you a copy of God's Word to follow along for the study. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through First Peter together, and we're in the second chapter where we left off. And as announced last Sunday morning, we're actually going to share the Lord's Supper together. So what we'll do is just... Uh, cut our study a little bit shorter uh, and then enter back into a time of song and worship as we prepare our hearts to share the elements of communion together. So this morning we're actually going to just for that reason, as I said last week, just kind of focus our attention on verses 9 and 10 uh, in chapter 2 and then next week we'll pick up in verse 11. So you may remain seated. Let me just read 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and 10 and we'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And Father, we humbly ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit, even in this part of this meeting together with you, that you would prepare us to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word that you've given to us, that, Lord, we might hear the very voice of God speaking to us what we need to hear as individuals and collectively as the family of God. Lord, we ask that you would put down any effort of the enemy to take away and to hinder and to distract from what you would have us to hear. Lord, help us physically, mentally, Lord, spiritually, in every way to be able to be attentive and to hear the voice of the living God. And as always, Lord, we ask that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and power speaking personally to each one of our hearts. Bless your word, Lord. You know what we're asking and what we're anticipating. We pray you do such now by your ministry among us. In Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You know, sometimes I'll find myself in the morning, and maybe you've experienced this too, and it seems it happens to me more on occasion in the winter time where I'll wake up and before I climb out of bed already, my mind sometimes will start turning about the reality of just really how thankful I am to be in a home that has heat, uh, to be in shelter. Uh, sometimes I'll find myself uh, thinking about the reality of just, Lord, thank you that uh, I'm in a heated home. There's a roof over my head. There's food, uh, there's food out there in my refrigerator. Uh, I have electricity. Thank you that I have plumbing. And if you've traveled to places before that don't have the type of plumbing that we do, you begin to develop a appreciation even for that. Thank you that I have running water. Uh, you know, just these simple things of just the realization uh, of really things that we ought to be grateful for and thankful for that we often just overlook. Lord, thank you I'm not terminally ill. I mean, just these simple things that often we just come to experience but we fail to just appreciate on an ongoing basis and I think the same thing can happen 
to us as God's people spiritually. That we become so familiar with the things of God. We become so comfortable and accustomed to the grace of God and to his mercy, to his presence in our lives. That sometimes we, we just start to overlook and, and really can kind of just fail to appreciate the wonderful things that God has done in our lives. And sometimes it really is good, I find for me personally, to just pause and reflect upon what the Lord has done. And what he has done in our lives. And as a Christian, we really do have a privileged position in our relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, these two verses that we're just going to sort of meditate upon before we share communion this morning, it appears to me in this next section of scripture that Peter is kind of just reflecting on that realization here. If you notice in verse 9 and 10, he's really just reflecting upon many of the incredible privileges and the astonishing position that we have as God's children. He's saying what he is in verse 9 really as a contrast to what he just said in the prior verses where he was talking about those who are disobedient to the word of God, that is those who choose not to submit to God's word, those who choose not to believe upon Jesus Christ. And he says as a result, they find themselves stumbling through life, finding it difficult to really get their bearings morally and spiritually because they're living independent of God. He says, however, but you... That's how verse 9 begins, but you. The idea is a contrast. He says, but you, and then the first thing he says, are a chosen generation. And he's going to begin to just describe some different things about our experience and position as a child of God. The first thing he says in verse 9 is, but you, he says, as God's children, are a chosen generation. Uh, now, Weist, who is a Greek scholar, tells us that the term that Peter uses there comes from a word meaning a race and the idea is a body of people with a common life and descent uh, so you could almost say it might be better translated into the english we think of the word generation as you know kind of maybe a gap of time 40 years or you know whatever we would consider a generation to be the, the implication in the original language there is more of a race of people, a body of people with a common life and a common descent, the language indicates. So it might be better translated, you are a chosen race. And the idea is a spiritual race. That's the implication the Bible is trying to give us there. Unlike uh, all the natural different races that we have on this planet and that we recognize, believers, the Bible says, compose in a sense sort of a supernatural chosen race. We are a people that God has chosen out of the world for salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us this. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That is by the Holy Spirit setting us apart, reaching out to us, drawing us, revealing our need of Jesus Christ, and then through our response by believing in the truth, the Bible says we've now experienced salvation. We have gone from just being God's creation which all of us are. We are all created by God, our life and, and our existence. But the Bible says that there's a transition that takes place where you go from being a creation of God to being a child of God when you embrace the gospel message of Jesus Christ and you experience God's salvation 
and you actually become a chosen child of God when you choose to believe upon the truth of the gospel. And in a sense, for those of us who are believers, we now have this common life in Christ. We now experience the divine nature, in a sense, the spiritual DNA of God himself. We've experienced that the Spirit of God has moved into our lives and awakened us to the things of God. And we are united in Christ. We're a unified family, a spiritual family as the body of Christ. And therefore, despite our natural skin color, despite our race, despite our ethnicity, which are all things that we should retain and appreciate and value that God has put upon this earth in diversity. But despite all those things, our personal heritage, in Christ, the Bible says we are a chosen generation spiritually. We are a chosen race spiritually. And the idea is as a chosen race spiritually, that unification supersedes all the natural differences that exist among us, our skin color, our ethnicity, our heritage, that in Christ, that unity of love as the family of God, that spiritual race that we make up, that God has established in Christ, it supersedes all those other differences that exist among us. Paul speaks about this in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 26 to 28, he says, for you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The idea is that's our new identity. We've been baptized into the family of God despite who we are, what our background, what our heritage, what our ethnicity. We have been baptized into Christ. We've put on Jesus Christ as our identity. And then he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor nor free there's neither male nor female for you are all one in christ jesus in other words the bible teaching yes these things exist there were jews and there were greeks and there's a lot of animosity between jews and greeks and jews and gentiles because of race and ethnicity and and these kind of things the cultural distinctions and differences that caused bigotry and 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 uh, you know sort of segregation among them and the bible says but in christ in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, whether slave or whether free, and you are a master and you own, he says, in Christ we are all one. There's a union that takes place through the blood of Christ and the love of God, which reminds us by way of application for you and I still this morning, that in Christ there can be, and hear me, there should be, the releasing of all bigotry, of all segregation, of all discrimination, whether it's because of race, whether it's because of age, whether it's because of gender, whether it's because of ethnic background, whether it's because of social status, rich or poor. See, the family of God is this really wonderful thing. The church is this marvelous spiritual institution that God has created where in Christ we realize, you know what, at the foot of the cross, it's all level ground. So whether I make $10,000 a year or whether I make $100,000 a year or whether I have this skin color or that skin color or whether my national heritage or this or that or whether I'm male or female or whether I'm a 12-year-old in the body of Christ or whether I'm 52 years old or 72 years old that there's this unity of the love of God that we are His children and we are able to put those things aside 
that the world contributes to and feeds into that has caused so much hatred and animosity and bigotry. Listen, contrary to the arrogant errors of mankind throughout human history, there is no superior race on this planet. Not from God's perspective. There is a spiritual race where God makes people one in Jesus Christ and they're able to set aside those things. And the wonderful thing is in the family of God, there can be complete equality. Under the blood of Christ and through the love of God, we can have acceptance. And do we have similar traits just like any other race? Yeah, but our one similar trait is this. It should be Christ-likeness that we're all growing in Christ-likeness and loving one another and setting aside all those things and our unity in Christ causes us to say, you know what, that supersedes all other differences. And the family of God, if you ask my opinion, has the best thing going because this is a place whereby you might experience love and acceptance and unity despite all those other distinctions that do exist and God honors them. I'm not saying we should do away with them but they don't have to matter in the church. They don't have to matter among God's family because there's that equality and that understanding that I need the blood of Jesus just as much as you do. And God loves me and God loves you equally in the same way and from his perspective, there's nothing more inferior or superior about anyone, but he sees us as children of God and that equality. And Peter says this is something that we have become a part of this chosen race. He secondly says we are also a royal priesthood. Now, Peter touched on this idea we saw last week back in verse 5, this subject or idea of the role of a believer having somewhat of an experience of like a priesthood. He said back in verse 5 that Christians are a holy priesthood, he said, called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And he picked up on this concept or idea how even as Aaron's family out of the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament. Remember, they were set apart. They were select and chosen by God in the Old Testament priesthood. That as individual believers, the Bible teaches that as Christians, that we have been set apart by God's Spirit to, in a sense, function in a similar capacity in a spiritual priesthood as well. And remember, the priesthood, Two things marked it. They had access to God and access to the things of God directly. And secondarily, they had a twofold ministry, which was to bring God to the people through their ministry, through the word of God and the things they did. But also, they served in a secondary way, which basically was to bring people before God through intercessory prayer and the other things that they would do and the bible teaches as an individual believer imagine this that we function from god's perspective as a priesthood we have a spiritual priesthood each and every individual christian not those who are just special people who take a label to them no the bible says that children of god christians are a spiritual priesthood. We understand Jesus is the great high priest. He's the mediator between God and man, but that we make up a priesthood spiritually from God's perspective. In that, just like the Old Testament priest, each and every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ, that we can come boldly into the presence of God with confidence because of our relationship 
with Jesus Christ. That I don't have to go through a human being. I don't have to go through a man who in a sense is more spiritual than me to have relationship with God, but that through the blood of Jesus Christ and the experience of God's Holy Spirit, you and I can come right into the presence of God. And I can come directly to God with my sins, come directly to God with my struggles, come directly to God to have fellowship and relationship with him. That's an incredible privilege that God has given to us that access directly into his presence by our belief and trust in him. And secondarily, we too have been set apart like unto the Old Testament priests with a twofold ministry. We in the same fashion as believers now are called to represent God to people. We are called in a sense to bring God to people, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And as we represent the Lord as good witnesses and we bring them the word of God, we bring God to humanity. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Jesus tells us. That's our calling. But we also have a secondary ministry just like a priest and that's not only do we bring God to people, but we also bring people to God. Through intercessory prayer, we bring people before God. We bring people before the throne of God as we pray for them. And as we perform ministry and seek to reach out to people, we have that dual function. Now take notice in verse 9 here that Peter, however, from verse 5, picks up a different term as he talks about us being a priesthood. He now says here in verse 9 that we are a royal priesthood. And he switches his term here. He adds another level of insight that word royal, when you look at it, is a term that speaks of kingship, royalty. And in essence, what the Bible is indicating is that our priesthood is actually a kingly priesthood. It's a royal priesthood. Well, this is confirmed in Revelation chapter 1, where there it says in Revelation 1 that Jesus Christ has loved us, and it says he has washed us from our own sins in his own blood, and has made us, listen, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I have to step back from that knowing myself and think, wow, you want to talk about a pretty radical promotion, elevation, transformation, call it what you will, that as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ washing us and him calling us into a relationship with God, as a result of that, we have gone from being slaves of sin and wicked rebels, God says, to becoming kings and priests before our God and Father in heaven. Now, that's what I call an advancement. You want to talk about an advancement? A wicked rebel and, and a slave of sin, and God says, but I'll take you just like that and I'll wash you clean, and Jesus cleanses us in his blood, and he says, you know what, I don't want you to be a slave of sin, and I don't want you to live like a rebel. Instead, I want to give you a promotion. I want to give you an exaltation, and I'm going to make you a king and a priest before God the Father in heaven. No doubt that's why the Bible tells us here, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. If that does not give us one thing to celebrate in, wow, Lord, what you have done with my worthless, wretched life in your presence. I mean, it's incredible the elevation, the privileges that God has given to us spiritually. Peter thirdly says in our verse here that we are also not only a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, but then he says a holy nation. A holy nation. That is, again, just like the nation of Israel was, and listen, and still is, 
a chosen people set apart by God for his own special purposes among the nation of Israel and they were given a homeland and they are given covenant promises and they are called to live differently to reflect God as they were in the same way you and I as the church an institution now spiritually made up of both Jew and Gentile together as one in Christ in the same way the church has been set apart for God's unique purposes in human history in much the same way and believers have also been given a unique purpose in God's overall plan and agenda through human history we have also been given special promises by God as the church we have also been given a homeland yet our homeland doesn't have physical boundaries like the land of Canaan did for Israel our homeland is spiritual it's eternal the Bible tells us that it's the city of the living God the new Jerusalem that's why Paul said as we studied Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 he said our citizenship is in heaven we too have a citizenship and in a sense we are on this earth now as believers as spiritual ambassadors and we are here serving the Lord but we realize that our homeland our ultimate destination where we belong is in heaven with God as our king and now we serve the Lord faithfully here with a sense of homesickness in our hearts realizing that one day we will get to be in heaven with our king and that is the place ultimately where we belong and our hearts have a sense of attachment to that and because of that we sense always there's this constant tension of dwelling here in this world and just like Israel was set apart and they were to live differently to reflect the ways of God you and I as Christians as ambassadors here are called to live differently to reflect the ways of God but we also will experience a tension in the midst of doing that that is why draw your attention to verse 11 where we'll pick up next week why peter says what he does he'll say beloved therefore i beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against your soul peter says look i understand it's a battle it's a battle you're an ambassador you're on foreign soil you feel at times out of place awkward uncomfortable your convictions don't match the moral climate you live in your spiritual desires don't correspond with the spiritual uh, in a sense climate that you live in in an anti-christian world so he says listen you need to realize that you're a pilgrim that you're a sojourner, that you're temporarily on an assignment and he says in the meantime you've got to abstain from those fleshly lusts that war against your soul in the midst of the process and then he'll go on to speak more about those things as we'll see. Fourthly in verse 9 here Peter also mentions that we're not only a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but he then says fourthly that we are his own special people. God's own special people. And when you look at the language here, it indicates God's own prized possession or his special possession. That God has acquired us, that he has purchased us, and we are now God's personal possession, and therefore, that gives tremendous value to our lives. Now, I want you to think with me through what the Bible is trying to convey here. Would you agree by illustration that value is oftentimes determined by who possesses something 
For example, you can have an ordinary pen or you can have a particular guitar or you can have a particular set of clothing. And depending upon who owns that pen or maybe who used that pen to sign some famous document or who plays that guitar, that's the same kind of guitar that you can go over to Guitar Center and buy yourself and make the most you know, horrific noises from, but yet some other guitar player who is famous plays that same guitar. And now all of a sudden, because of who used that guitar or who owns that guitar, that guitar has what? Tremendous value because of who owned it. That pen has incredible value or that clothing article has incredible value simply because of who it belongs to. And in the same way, the Bible is saying, look, that's somewhat true of our lives. If we were to be very honest with ourselves, we are just a bunch of ordinary people. The Bible says that we're clay vessels. We are cracked pots. Uh, we are weak human beings. We are marred. And there is really nothing that special about any one of us in this room. Now, I know sometimes we think we're special. People make us, you know act out as if we're somewhat more special than others but from God's perspective truth be told we are a bunch of weak marred clay vessels on this earth and there's nothing really that special about any human being in and of themselves but listen but God is really really special and Jesus is really really special and therefore, when God acquires us as his own, and when Jesus calls us to become his bride, and all of a sudden now we're married to Jesus Christ, guess what? All of a sudden now, we have tremendous value. And we acquire value, and we become worth more and valuable in the sight of God and on this planet because of our connection to the Lord. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we now have great and special value. Now, that teaches two things. First of all, that a relationship with God adds tremendous value to your life. Hey, do you want to add value to your life? The place to start is a relationship with God. A relationship with God adds tremendous value to your life. And that also means this this morning, that your life as God's own special people, your life has tremendous value special value to God. Listen, it may not seem like your life has any value to anyone else and you may deal with the hurt and the pain that it doesn't seem that you were special to your parents or maybe it doesn't seem that you were special to your spouse or it doesn't seem that anybody ever put any value on your life. Truth be told, you may be here this morning and you have wrestled or are wrestling with suicidal tendencies because you feel like your life is worth nothing and it has no value. Listen to God. Your life has tremendous value. If you are the one ruling your own life, it, it, it will seem to have no value. But if you let God take hold of your life and you put your life into the very hands of the one who created you and made you, your life has tremendous value. And God sees tremendous special worth in your life and this incredible privileged position can be experienced through a simple relationship with God. God values our lives. He says here, I mean the terms, he says, you are God's own special people. He then fifthly says as well in verse 9 that we also have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before coming to Christ and being saved by him, the Bible teaches very clearly that we were all living and walking in darkness. That is, morally and spiritually, every one of us was living in darkness. Now, I know for some people that almost sounds as if it's somewhat offensive, but listen to the words of Jesus and in connection with some of his greatest loving statements. John 3.16 begins by saying this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his own Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then listen to what Jesus himself continues to say. This is what Jesus says. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3:19, Jesus says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So Jesus declares that morally, spiritually, because of sin and our fallen condition, we were living in darkness. Whether we realized it or not, whether we wanted to admit it or not, that before I was saved by Jesus Christ, before I was delivered by him out of darkness into the marvelous light, the Bible says that I was the light of the world being Jesus Christ was present and available, but I loved darkness rather than light, and I didn't want to come to the light because when you come into the light, then things are clearly exposed. And when you're living in the darkness, a part of that is something that if you're doing things that are evil and inappropriate, it's more comfortable doing it in the dark because you don't feel uncomfortable about it. So you keep things in the dark. So you keep away from Jesus Christ so that you can continue to live in the darkness in your mind and in your behaviors and in your actions. But yet God's heart through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is to deliver us out of the darkness. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that we have been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's been our experience as a Christian. And if you have experienced that, you say, yes, that's true. The power of darkness, it doesn't control me anymore. I can live in the light now. I don't have to be ashamed of who I am and what I'm doing because God's delivered me from the power of darkness. I don't have to live a secret life anymore. I can walk in the light because God loved me and he forgave me and he delivered me out from under the power of the darkness so that I can live in the light of the Lord. Jesus in John 8 declared this, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And what a glorious thing to be able to follow Jesus, who is the light of the world. And he says, and if you follow me, you don't have to walk in the darkness. You'll have the light of life. That is, Jesus opens our eyes. He delivers us from the power of darkness. And when I came to Jesus, he said, listen, now I'm going to give you the light, Tony, to see how you're supposed to live life. You've been trying to live life for a long time on your own, with your own perspectives, but truly your understanding has been darkened and your perspective on life, family, marriage, existence, what you're, in a sense, it was always as if I was making decisions in the dark. And listen, when you walk around the dark, what happens? You stumble over things. 
It's kind of dangerous. It's more difficult. But when you come to Jesus, the light of the world, he says, then I'll give you the light of life. And all of a sudden you see more clearly. And you don't find yourself stumbling and tripping through life and making decisions where you're regretting and experiencing things where you feel like, oh, I just, I don't see clearly. Because Jesus says, listen, that's because I'm the one that gives light. And Jesus is the light of the world, it says here, has called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. He then says, verse 10 here, who once you and I were not a people, but now are the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So in verse 10, notice Peter reminds us truly what we once were. And then he says as well in verse 10, two times what we now are. And as I said at the beginning, sometimes it is really good and it is quite healthy for all of us to remember what we once were and what we now are as a result of experiencing God's salvation. Peter says here in verse 10 that at one point, once we were not a people and we had not obtained mercy. He's talking about our life prior to coming to Christ. And he reminds us here that at one point we had no connection to God. We are living independent of him. The Bible tells us before we're saved that we are alienated from the life of God. We don't have a relationship with him. We're living independent. We're lost in darkness. We're unable to find our way. We're trapped in our own sin. And as a result of those things, we are also living under the sentence of the wrath of God upon our life. That we are destined as the repercussions and the result of our sinful lifestyle of experiencing the torment of hell for all of eternity until we come to Jesus and let him take away the punishment for our sins. And Peter says, this is what we once are. He says, but now, he says, verse 10. That's where you once were. But now, he says, we are the people of God. He just went through a list. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we're now God's people. And the point is, what changed that? What made us going from being not a people to becoming the people of God? Again, let us always remember, it was nothing that we did and it was nothing that we deserved or achieved or earned. It really was that we simply responded to the prompting of God's spirit in our heart and we believed and we received what God was offering us through his son, Jesus Christ. I love how Peter says here, the life changer, verse 10, he says, is simply this, we have now obtained mercy. We've obtained mercy. And what's mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Peter said that was the life changer. When we, by faith, embrace Jesus Christ and we obtain the mercy of God upon our soul. Listen to how Titus states this. Let me read to you some verses from Titus 3. Titus says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. We were living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs or recipients according to the hope of eternal life. To obtain the mercy 
of God. And what was the reasoning for all that? Well, in conclusion, look back with me in verse 9. Peter says this is the reason that God's done these things. He says, verse 9, right in the middle there, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God saved me. God rescued you. God redeemed us for one reason while our time still here is on this earth, that while still here before we go home to be with him, that we may proclaim his praises upon this earth. That word praises literally means God's excellence or God's virtuous attributes and all of who he is that we are called to proclaim praise about him and to him and you know what this morning as we share communion can i remind you really that is exactly what we have the opportunity to do publicly and corporately as god's family because the bible tells us in first corinthians 11 that whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup we do proclaim the lord's death until he comes. And we proclaim personally and publicly our appreciation of the salvation that God has provided for us.